0: Welcome to the Left Hand Church Podcast. My name's Paula Stone-Williams, and I'm one of the co-pastors here. We're so glad that you're with us. We love having you join us here at Left Hand, we would love it if you would join us in a financial way as well. You can text any amount to 84321, and we'll receive it. You also can go to our website, lefthandchurch.org, and you can find out there how you can donate. Every time we begin a service, we begin with these words. Married, divorced, and single here, it's one family that mingles here. Conservative and liberal here, we've all got to give a little here. Big and small here, there's room for us all here. Doubt and belief here, we all can receive here. LGBTQ and straight here, there is no hate here. Woman, non-binary, and man here, everyone can here. Whatever your race here, for all of us, grace here. In imitation of the ridiculous love Almighty God has for each of us and all of us, let us live and love without labels. So I had a friend who had a $14 million yacht. Not going to lie, it's not a bad thing to have a friend who has a $14 million yacht. We took some really nice trips to the Caribbean on that thing, but me... I had a 14-foot kayak, and therein was the difference. My friend was interested in gaining more and more power on the journey known as upward mobility, while I was a little bit more interested in learning to rightly use the power I already had. Did you ever notice how much people focus on gaining more and more power in our world? Everybody seems to be on the journey of upward mobility. You don't find many purposeful fellow sojourners on a journey of downward mobility and we project this desire for power onto God. We say God is a loving God, a truthful God, an honest God, a caring God, a gracious God, a merciful God, but more than anything else God is a powerful God. But where did this idea come from? The idea that the greatest attribute of God is God's power Well, it started a couple of hundred years before the time of Christ with Plato. Plato called God the demi-urge, the urgency behind everything that happens. So when a blade of grass grows out of the ground, Plato said it is the urgency of God that is causing that piece of grass to grow. Or if a tree limb falls off of a tree and hits you on the head, Plato would say God made that happen because God causes everything to happen that happens. God causes everything to happen with God's power. It's a variation of the phrase, all things happen for a reason. It's just saying the reason is the power of God. Now this notion that the greatest attribute of God is God's power carried on through the fourth century to Augustine, who brought that into Christianity just as Augustine brought a lot of other lousy things into Christianity, including a terrible view of human sexuality. And then from there, this notion of God as a power-hungry God continued on to the time of the Reformation, right down to evangelical thought today, where people talk about the sovereignty of God, a word not in the New Testament, but a word focused on God using God's power. Well, it's true. God is a powerful God, but is power God's greatest attribute? The Bible speaks more about God's purpose than it speaks about God's power. The Bible speaks more about God's love than it speaks about God's power. The Bible speaks far more about God's restraint of power than it speaks about God's use of power. Now, what do I mean by restraint of power? I'm a runner. I've been running pretty much six days a week for the last, mm, wow, yeah, about 43 years. I mean, I've run about 40,000 miles, the way I have it figured. And When my children were young, my son Jonathan used to love to run with me. He'd see me lacing up and he'd say, Dad, can I go running with you? And I'd say, sure. And we'd take off running and he would run as fast as his five-year-old legs can take him. And I would run slower than I can walk, which is an art form in and of itself to appear to be running when in fact you are mm, leisurely walking. And We'd go out a couple hundred yards, and then I could see he was losing steam, and so we'd turn around and head back, and about the last 30 yards, I'd say, hey, buddy, you wanna race me? He'd say, sure, and we'd race back to the house, and amazingly, every single time, he beat me by a single step. Now, of course, I had the power to be able to totally obliterate my son, to leave him coughing and sputtering in the dust, a speck in the distance. But I loved my son, and my love for my son caused me to restrain my power, to run at his speed so he could feel good about himself, so he could say, I did something my dad did. Far more than my power was my restraint of power. In the same way, God restrained God's power, and God in the person of Jesus, again, restrains power more than uses We're going to take a look at three passages where Jesus speaks. And in all three, the mark of the passage is Jesus' restraint of power. The first is the end of the third chapter, beginning of the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has come to John at the Jordan River and said, John, to fulfill all righteousness, I want you to baptize me. Because it had been predicted in the scriptures that that would happen to the Messiah. John said, yeah, actually it should be you baptizing me? And Jesus said, no, to fulfill all righteousness, I want you to baptize me. And so John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, and what happened? God spoke up. And God spoke audibly and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And not only that, but a figure like a dove descended down from heaven to where Jesus stood. Now you know it's a real good day when God speaks up audibly and calls you God's beloved. But immediately, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert. Now make no mistake about it, a decision to be beloved by God, a decision to follow God, is a decision to be led by the Spirit into the desert. Explains why there are a lot of folks who don't follow Jesus. And for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus fasted. And then at the end of the fast, Satan shows up and says, my goodness, you have got to be hungry. Why don't you turn these stones into bread? And Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone. So they go to the top of the temple and looking down 450 feet, Satan says, go ahead and jump, go ahead, jump. Scripture says angels will swoop you up. It'll be great, you'll head off the six o'clock evening news. Man jumps from the temple, swooped up by angels, film at 11. But Jesus says, you don't test God. So they go to the top of the mountain and looking down at the valley below. Satan says, you can have it all. You can have every bit of it, power over all of it, Jesus. All you have to do is bow down to me. And Jesus says, you don't compromise with God. Three times, Satan has said to Jesus, go ahead, Jesus. Step into the phone booth and come out Superman. And three times, Jesus says, no thanks. I think I'll continue to function rather like Clark, mild-mannered reporter thank you. In fact, you think about it, virtually his entire time on earth, Jesus functioned like Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter. Even after he was raised again from the dead when he could have grabbed all the power anyone ever wanted, he made himself known only to a few. Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter. An important teaching on the subject of power, But we come to our second passage I want us to look at, where Jesus speaks, and the subject is power. It's the next chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, the fourth chapter of Matthew, the first five verses. We're going to be looking at these much more in-depth as the summer goes on. We call them the Beatitudes, and they start this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. But that term, poor in spirit, actually had a far more common translation of a single word the word was confused. So what Jesus is saying here at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount is, blessed are the confused, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now that means we here at Left Hand Church are quite blessed (laughs) because we spend a good bit of our lives confused. We know what good questions are. We don't have a whole lot of answers, but hey, we figure it's pretty good just to have figured out what the good questions are. And there's a lot going on in the world right now that utterly, completely confuses us. Jesus says, blessed are the confused, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Then he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. But that word mourn was also a very specific and unusual term that meant those who mourn the very specific, known, understood nature of their own flaws, of their own sin. So what he's saying here is blessed are those who are self-aware and self-aware enough to understand where their own weaknesses lie. Over the last few months, I have called these our abiding shadows or our standing shadows those parts of ourselves that try hard as we might we don't ever really fully get control of but when we are able to recognize our standing shadows we are not inclined to judge others most of those who judge others do not have a lot of self-awareness if we're aware of our own flaws our own standing shadows if we're aware of the specific nature of our own sin, those who mourn that, well, we will be comforted. We also, by the way, will tend not to judge others. We'll instead look with curiosity on the others because we'll understand just as we don't know why we do the things we do, so they also don't know why they do the things they do. Curiosity accomplishes much more in the kingdom of God than judgment. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Then he says, blessed are the meek. One of my favorite books of all time, I just read again not long ago. It was written by a high school teacher in New Jersey, Christopher DeVink. It's called Precious Memories for a Faithless Time. Seems appropriate to read that right now. Precious Memories for a Faithless Time. Only the heart knows how to find them. And it's a collection of stories, and in one of those stories, he talks about the four different kinds of people who exist in the world. Now listen carefully and see if you find yourself in any of these four descriptions. First of all, he says there are those who know that they know. Presidents, generals, admirals, award-winning cooks, football coaches. They've got the knowledge. They know they've got the knowledge. They want you to know they know. They've got the knowledge. Those who know that they know. You're thinking of somebody right now, I can tell. The second group is actually even more difficult to get along with. The second group are those who think that they know. They're of course sure they have all the answers when the truth is they don't even have a clue what the questions are yet. This group includes all high school and junior high school students in America. Those who think that they know. there's a third group i feel very comfortable with the third group the third group are those who know that they don't know they've lived life long enough to realize they don't have nearly all the answers they once thought they had and they've become rather humble in the process those who know that they don't know i was talking with a close friend not long ago about some significant difficulties that have come into my life post-transition and How I in fact have failed spectacularly on three different occasions and my friend said back to me as only a close friend can, well don't you think it was about time? (laughs) Everything you touched in your previous life turned to gold. And now you're discovering what the rest of us know. That often things don't work out the way you want them to work out and you in fact have control over far less than you think you have control over those who know that they don't know. But then DeVinck says there's a fourth group, and he says the fourth group invariably are those who come out of the third group, but they refuse to stop short on the journey of life. They continue growing whether they want to or not because they know it's the only decent way to live, and slowly, almost imperceptibly, they gain a wisdom they don't even realize they have. And who does he call this last group? Those who don't know, that they know. (laughs) Jesus called them the meek and said they would inherit the earth. Now correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think any of the people Jesus is talking about here are likely to be elected as president of the United States. Back in the 1950s, Adlai Stevenson lost two presidential elections. Why? Because, in part, he was too prone to self-doubt. America wanted a president who knew that he knew, so we chose a general, Dwight David Eisenhower. But you know, way down deep inside, I think every last one of us knows where the real power lies. Let me ask you a question. What do you do on Father's Day? We're not even sure when it is. We know it's in June. Is it the second week, third week? We don't know. doesn't really matter because no one bothers to buy a card for their father on Father's Day. Just ask the people at Hallmark. They know that. They just kind of skip the whole holiday. I mean, basically what you do on Father's Day is you leave your dad alone to watch the ballgame. That's Father's Day. Now, let me ask you another question. What happens on Mother's Day? The entire world comes to a halt. Do you know in New York, where I lived for 35 years, Mother's Day is the busiest traffic day of the year? Busier than Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, any other holiday. Why? Because people know where the real power lies. It lies with the mothers. It lies with the servants. It always has. Always has. So we come to the third time Jesus speaks, and the subject is power. Sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. He's just fed 10,000 people, likely, from a few loaves and fishes, and a huge party erupts among the people. We have a new king for Israel, King Jesus. But Jesus has no interest in being the new political king of Israel, so he leaves. He goes up into the mountains alone, tells the twelve to go back down and cross the Sea of Galilee. They are very upset in the middle of the night as they navigate a storm. The time seems so right for him to proclaim himself king. But dawn of the next morning, they find themselves miraculously with Jesus on the other side of the sea, And everybody who's been looking for him on the one side now comes to the other side and they gather around Jesus again and they beg him to be the new political king of Israel. And he says to them, finally, once and for all, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to be the new political king of Israel. I'm not going to defeat the Romans. I'm not going to bring independence back to Israel. I'm not going to give all of you free food. Got it? And John said the crowd responded by saying, this is a difficult statement. But it wasn't difficult to understand. Jesus was as clear as can be. It was difficult to accept. Because if they were to accept the words of Jesus, they were going to have to do three things they distinctly did not want to do. The first was to admit they were wrong, dead wrong, about what the Messiah had come to do. They were convinced the Messiah was coming to be a new earthly king to lead the people of Israel out of bondage and then give all of his friends political power. And they were going to have to recognize that they were dead wrong about that. And if they were wrong about that, then they were lost, they were confused, they were clueless, they were out of control. They had no idea what was next. And these are not words that make people feel comfortable. Lost, confused, clueless, out of control. You know, Easter Sunday, my family was together, and they were reminding me of a story I hate to be reminded of. It happened in the summer of 1994. We were on vacation in Los Angeles. We were on the bus going to pick up our rental car to drive to wherever we were going, and the rental car driver was behaving driving quite erratically. And so at one point I stood up to steady our bags and just as I stood up for no apparent reason, he put his foot really hard on the brake. And I hit the deck and slid all the way to the front of one of the really long Hertz buses. And the only people on the bus were our little family of five and two businessmen in their Brooks Brothers suits at the front of the bus. And I slid right to their feet. And for whatever reason, I looked up at the two of them and with complete and utter control, I said, how are you guys doing? (laughs) At which point my entire family exploded into gales of laughter in the back of the bus. That just by bringing up the story will be repeated immediately in our family Now, for a while, it was funny, fine, but then it was no longer funny to me. And I can tell you now, some, I don't know, 30 years later, it definitely is no longer funny to me. Still, they laugh because I was and am the kind of person who always looks like she's in control, always looks like she's got all the answers. And my family saw graphically portrayed before them that day what they had known for a very long time that I was not in control. None of us are, you know. And if they were willing to admit they weren't in control, the crowd was going to have to do a second thing they didn't want to do. They were going to have to actually go back, study the scriptures, and figure out what the Messiah was supposed to be. That was going to be hard work. And if they did that, they were going to have to do the most difficult thing, a third thing. They were going to have to recognize That the Messiah had not come to give them political power, and they were going to have to be willing to stand firmly with somebody who looked a lot like Clark Kent, mild mannered reporter. And so, what did they do? They all left. They'd been following Jesus for two years, and now they all left. They'd seen him perform miracles. They'd heard him teach lessons. They saw his character. And now they all left. Jesus just isn't our kind of Messiah. And Jesus turns to the 12 and realizes if the 12 leave, it's all over. There's no one left to preach the gospel. No one left who knows the lessons he has taught. No one left who can get the church underway. And knowing the future of humanity hangs in the balance of the answer. He says to the 12, well, what about you? Are you leaving too? And he doesn't know the answer. And there is a long silence before finally Peter, of course it was Peter, said, Lord, to whom would we go? For you are the one with words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I see tears streaming down their cheeks, and I hear a big sigh of relief from Jesus. Okay, we're gonna be okay. They get it because they finally understood. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean turning stones into bread. It doesn't mean jumping from the temple to be swooped up by angels. It doesn't mean defeating your political enemies to give power to a few of your friends. That being a follower of Jesus does mean a willingness to be led by the Spirit into the desert. And that being a follower of Jesus does mean learning to live like Clark Kent when you know you're really Superman. But if you come to understand that, well, now you've come to understand the true essence of power. So we had just moved into our house in Lyons. It was the early fall of 2007. Jonathan came out with Juby for a visit. He had just turned 30 that year, and he said, you want to hike? Because we used to hike a lot in Rocky Mountain National Park. We'd done Long's Peak a couple of times, and I said, sure, and so we headed off early on a Saturday. The park was busy, and so we headed to a less busy section, one of our favorite trails, Gem Lake, and at that point, you access Gem Lake from the Twin Owls Trailhead, if you know the park. So we left from the Twin Owls Trailhead, and Jonathan said, as we got just started, hey, Dad, do you you want to run instead of hike? Well, we'd run it plenty, and I was like, 55 at the time, so it's like, well, sure, yeah, let's run it. And if you know that part of the trail, it's a very steep uphill immediately, and he took off like a streak of greased lightning. I mean, he was over the first rise before I could even think about it. I get over that rise. I see he's still pulling away, kind of up the second hill. I get to the top of that hill. He's still pulling away as he comes down to where the Gem Lake Trail intersects. We get to where there's a big panorama, if you know the trail. Finally, I'm catching up to him, and when I caught up to him, I couldn't resist. I said, so, kid, you ever hear the story of the tortoise and the hare? He said, ah, dad, I'm sorry. I'd... I, you know, I just got here last night, and I, I just—I went out too fast. I, I, so we don't have to apologize for it. It's fine that you went out fast. He said, "Yeah, I, the altitude's getting to me," and so we just kind of slowly ran together, and we talked for a while. But we were running, and that's a fairly steep trail. You, you rise about a thousand feet in just one point eight miles, and I was really breathing hard, breathing heavy. And as we conversed, I realized he was not. He's just talking to me as smoothly and easily as he could, as if we were at sea level together. And that's when it occurred to me. He had the power to leave me coughing and sputtering in the dust, a speck in the distance. But he loved his dad. So he restrained his power to run at his dad's speed. So his dad could feel good about himself. So he could say, I did something my son did. I ran to the top of Gem Lake. and I realized, what goes around comes around. Mm -hmm. That same restraint of power has come with him through my transition, shows up all the time and we're together. Don't ever forget where your real power lies. It doesn't lie in how many people you have under your control or how much money you make. It lies in how well you love the people God has placed in your path. And if you understand that, well, okay. Now you understand the true meaning of power. Thank you for the example, God. We need examples, we need pictures. We do better with pictures than words. May we love well. For this we pray in the name of Christ, amen. This is John Gaddis. I'm one of the co-pastors here at Left Hand Church. As you listen to this teaching, we hope it was a reminder that the love of God is bigger, more inclusive, filled with more grace than any of us can imagine. There is truly room for us all here. If you have any questions about Left Hand Church or this teaching, please email me at john at lefthandchurch.org. You can also tune into our live stream services on our church Facebook page every Sunday at 5 p.m. Mountain for great music and original teachings. Thank you for joining us.